Good evening and welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, the second best China-Africa podcast you ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China-Africa research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson. And Enkem Kalu is your co-host. Fantastic. Today, we are recording in person from the Cowries and Rice Fortress in Arlington, Virginia. Hopefully, we will have a more conversational episode today, and may we be protected from our many enemies. Dr. Kalu, what is new with you? I finally made it to the interwebs. I am on Twitter. It's very, very exciting. I have two tweets two as tweets. of this What week. are these tweets about? Um, I thought my first one should be inspirational. And so I found words. I can't remember what they are now, but there's words. And then the second one was obviously on China and Africa. High five. Fantastic. What is your Twitter handle so our followers can listen to you? At Nkem E. Kalu. At Nkem E. Kalu. No underscores, no, no spaces. No underscores, no spaces. Fantastic. You heard it here. Follow her on Twitter, and she's going to be posting up pictures of cats? No. I don't like cats. Okay. <laughs> dogs. Okay. Do- dogs and probably other China, <laughs> Africa, miscellaneous. Okay. Today's episode is an exercise in pseudo-intellectual navel-gazing. And these sorts of exercises are exactly what we created this podcast for, besides uh, money and power. We are going to discuss whether China is a neo-colonial power or not. However... Not content to simply discuss this issue as is, we are adding an extra layer because we are going to be using Kwame Nkrumah's definition of neocolonialism. Now, Kwame Nkrumah literally wrote the book on neocolonialism, Neocolonialism, the Last Stage of Imperialism, which you can actually find for free on Marxist.org. Um, one, of the, one instance when communism works, you can get free Marxist books online. And... We're going to use his definition of, of uh, neocolonialism to, to go on ahead. Before we begin, I'm going to give you a little background on Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah was, for most Pan-Africanists, one of the great Pan-African leaders of the 20th century. The first president prime minister of Ghana helped lead Ghana to independence in 1957 on March 6th. Um, and... That's a really big deal. The first was the first sub-Saharan Africa to gain independence from the British, or the first Black African country to gain, maybe a combination of both. But basically, a really big deal. Um, 1957, three years before the United Nations called the Year of Africa, when a lot of African countries gained their independence, um, and he was a huge supporter of Pan-Africanism. And there's a lot of definitions of Pan-Africanism, but in this one, I'm going to use the unity of the peoples of Africa. Um, now, there's a lot of different things going on here, but Dr. Kalu, this debate you have already won because Kwame Nkrumah loved China, and he <laughs> was a big partner with China, and he was a big partner with China when he was writing this book. So right at the outset, I am conceding defeat on this debate um, because had Kwame Nkrumah lived, he would be agreeing with you, Dr. Kalu. Uh, but... Um, I'm, I'm going to use a few of his words and, and a few of his background um, to, to, to kind of look at it from an, another angle. I'm going to look at perhaps post-reform China, China from the 1979 uh, onwards. Um, I'm also going to kind of um, maybe talk a little bit about his background in that uh, Kwame Nkrumah, um, from, from my time in Ghana, was often called a great African but not necessarily a great Ghanaian. And I want to talk sort of about the background of that statement. 
And after that, you were going to probably kick my butt and talk about why China is not a neocolonial power and why I'm wrong. And with that, take it away, Dr. Kalu. All right. So as Winslow's already mentioned, we're going to be talking about Kwame Nkrumah's um, definition of neocolonialism, which is probably, for all intents and purposes, one of the better and most succinct statements as to what this great big idea um, of neocolonialism is. And he defined um, neocolonialism in his 1966 publication as the state, which is the state. Allow me to start from the Mm -hmm. beginning. Um, neocolonialism is the state which is subject to it. The state that is subject to neocolonialism is, in theory, independent and has all the outward trappings of an international sovereignty. In reality, its economic system and thus its political policy is directed from outside. And I, I think that that is a is a good tidbit, at least a good um, anchor around which to center our arguments on neocolonialism. Um, I'll start off by stating that I don't believe that um, the Chinese agenda in plan or implementation is neocolonialist. And I'll start with the most basic reason ever. There really is no empirical research or evidence that has been put forward to support the idea of an imperialist China. There's nothing there. Um, Even if we look at, for instance, there's been a lot of claims talking about um, well, ch- continued Chinese engagement on the African continent is to the benefit of the Chinese overwhelmingly and not to the Africans. You have to then ask the first question, which is, wait, are we talking about Africa as a whole or are we talking about individual states? Because if you look at Chinese trade with the African continent, it's actually fairly even on both sides If you look in terms of dollar amounts. If you look at Chinese trade with certain African countries, Angola, for instance, China is buying a lot of oil from Angola, so they have a significant trade deficit um, with Angola. With other countries, Nigeria, they have a trade surplus, um, which is bound to change because they're buying up oil, um, oil bids in Nigeria. Um, but on an individual country level, then that's different. But what's particularly important about Nkrumah's definition is that he uses the word directed. The policies of the state are directed from the outside. And that's very important. You look back at colonial estates, you look at um, British control of India or of other African states, French control of African states, and the policies that were adopted within these colonies were directed by the governments back, um, back in the West and back in Europe. The Chinese do not direct the policies of African states. Now, it'll be foolish to say they have no influence. They have influence, obviously, especially where they've been working primarily with elites or um, political parties that are in power. Um, So there has been, for instance, if if the Chinese then made an agreement with, um, I think one of the the stories that people use to counter that is um, Sudan, where the Chinese worked with the government to build um, power stations, and some of the locals wound up being relocated so that the land could be repurposed and used to build roads and power stations. And the forcible removal of the local people by the government for a project that the Chinese were working on was considered to be neocolonialist. Now, I continue to make the argument that it was not because those were decisions that the government made. Which government? The Sudanese government made to work with 
um, as a part of their, yes, it was influenced by their arrangement with the Chinese, but the Sudanese government determined that it was going to relocate these people, and it then chose the manner that it relocated these people, which might have been, um, according to some of the reports, um, in direct violation of their human rights. But this was not done at the hands of the Chinese. It was done at the hands of their local government. Um, focusing at sovereignty, which is the core concept um, around which imperialism is built, the Chinese cannot afford to be imperialistic because the minute they are, then they hold themselves accountable to, um, to other outside influences on their own type of government. For instance, um, if the China, China's one China policy um, demands the recognition of one Chinese government, but if China and why China has could, been... Could you give some elaboration on one Chinese government? What other Chinese governments are there? Oh, it's going back in history <laughs> then. So back in, um, I like to call it the independence period because it makes it sound less bloody, um, when African states were getting their independence. And well, actually, following the Cultural Revolution in China, the original Chinese government relocated to Taiwan and... Um, the, the original meaning the, the nationalist yes, government. Yes, the... the oh. Republic of China government okay. relocated to Taiwan. And um, the government that was in power in Beijing wanted to be recognized on as, as the real government of China. And um, what then happened was that they actually lobbied African states for votes at the United Nations for them to be recognized. And since then, seeing as Taiwan still remains a country that's independent and recognized, uh, well, debatably, debatably, it's, yes. it's, it's <laughs> touch and go. But the One China policy, for instance, and this is, this is a good place where we can actually talk about neo-imperialism. One China policy um, determines whether or not China will engage with a state. African states choose to engage with China. They also choose the nature of their engagement with the Chinese government, with Chinese businesses and Chinese enterprises. And they can opt in simply by recognizing one China policy. Should they not do that and prefer to engage with Taiwan, then they can do that. As long as African countries continue to have options and alternatives, especially in the multipolar world that we're entering into, there's no way you can call neocolonialism. Oh, I, I think I think it's a, a bit very forcefully argued, and, and, um, and I'll let you take and, the stage now. Um, well, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the specificity of neocolonialism, not colonialism or imperialism, which I, I think are are different. Under um, Nkrumah's uh, definition, neocolonialism is basically the country might appear to be sovereign, but it's directed by other powers. A continuation of the quote that you had is the result of neocolonialism is that foreign capital is used for the exploitation rather than for the development of the less developed parts of the world. Investment under neocolonialism increases rather than increases the gap between the rich and the poor countries of the world. Now, it, for neocolonialism to, to, to really function, it's, it's very economics driven. So you can have a country that is nominally independent but because of economic realities, and I want to use this quote, under the capitalist world system, uh, they're not as sovereign as they would like to be because of economic realities. They can't, for example, um, they, they can't, for example, recognize certain countries or else they might lose um, aid or technical assistance from another, another country. Uh, now, under that definition, and, and it's really under that particular very narrow definition, I would argue um, 
China is a neo-colonial power, and I'd go even further, I'd argue it's always been a neo-colonial power. Now, why do I say that? Because China, from the get-go, in terms of its engagement in Africa, in terms of um, uh, third worldism and and and, this, and the Bandung uh, conference, um, while it preached non-interference, it was always um, quite ready to interfere in countries, especially in the post-Sino-Soviet um, uh, split when China and, and Russia were going at it, not just China and the U.S. Allow me to jump in. Jump in. Get in here. China was willing to interfere right. and to help, but they, they wanted to be invited in. And further still, they offered their help and assistance in a take-it-or-leave-it sort of position. And that's been, that has been noted by multiple Chinese and African historians who talked about the independence period and when China came in and was supporting um, a lot of the African nationalist movements. Right. And they offered access to their propaganda plans, access to training, um, military training, um, community mobilization training, all sorts of training and um, education opportunities. But that was all done with uh, you can do with it what you like, and if it doesn't work for you, okay. I, I'm gonna add a little bit to that story. You're right, there were Chinese invited in, especially in terms of the, the revolutionary period when a lot of countries, African countries, didn't gain their independence um, and, and um, ha- had, to, had to come to arms in order to do so. There's a, a, a brief period in um, the 1960s um, and I want to quote from some notes I wrote here. As part of Nkrumah's attempts to build a socialist Africa, he set up secret camps in uh, Marnkongen, I think it's how you pronounce it, in 1961. Um, Russians were sent in to help train the, these people. So it wasn't Chinese yet in, in 1962. Uh, but they did not get along. And after a while, they were kicked out in the same year. Uh, the camp was moved in the same year to half Assini. In 1964, Nkrumah had the first Chinese military trainers to assist the dissidents from already free African countries um, overthrow these countries. Now, it's dissidents of already freed African countries, so Nigeria, for example. Um, And these camps drove West African neighbors nuts. When... um, Nkrumah was trying to have an OA, uh, Organization of African Unity meeting in 1965. He had to shut down the camps for a few months because, like, all the Nigerians in particular really hated these camps. Now, you're right. They were being sent to um, apartheid South Africa. They were being sent to Angola. But they were also being sent to independent African countries. Allow me to turn that question on its head for you. Turn when you around. say independent African countries, are you talking about neo-colonialist African countries? Because Nigeria, for instance, yes, um, Nkrumah's camps did provide um, training and, um, and mobilization and, 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 and resources for Nigerians that were seeking additional political liberation post-independence. But Nigeria's independence is still something that's hotly debated because the British power handed over independent um, handed over the Nigerian government to northern Nigerian Nigerians and southeastern Nigerians, where the bulk of Nigerian wealth remains to this day, did not have an adequate share of representation in government. But which is but what they demanded. Nigerian oil did not become a big deal until after the Civil War. It. You're right. Southeast Nigeria was was, no. was not considered uh, a, a part of the bargain. But to say that China was only overthrow helping to overthrow, you know, 
apartheid South Africa or, 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 or Portuguese held like Mozambique is incorrect. No, I'm not saying, I mean, that's not my point at all, but my point is there was still the need for continued economic and political liberations past independence. Because if, you're, if, you, if the people found the government in place to not be adequate, if they did not feel that it was legitimate, I'll make the argument that they have a right to attempt to find resolution and attempt to find a government that they find representative of themselves. That's all, that's all well and good, but for China to support an already independent, even if they don't consider them independent, movement, under my definition, which I get from Nkrumah, is interference and, and directed. Now, but it was the, welcomed interference. That's different. I don't and think... And welcomed by I, the locals. That's different. No, I would not say that, it's, that it's Chinese still, trained saboteurs move, in Nigeria are welcomed. Liber, it's still a move for liberation. I mean, I can tell to this day, Okay. to this day, I know personal Biafrans who refuse to identify as Nigerians, who were supported, yes, by the Chinese. Uh, the, I mean, they're also supported by the white South Africans. Like, when, when, when this country declared independence, it was a weird mix of allies they managed to get. That's, that's very uh, true. So, But I think the point that we're making, which goes back to a point that I made a little bit uh, towards the end of my, my argument, was that there's a lot of options, and we're moving into a multipolar world, and the mix of influences... Um, is making it more difficult for us to see true neocolonialism or true neo-imperialism. What you have now is a limiting or a limitation of the ability of external actors to direct the actions of states, but you have an increase in their ability to influence the actions of state. Okay. No, and, the, and, and China, yes, China the, influences the actions of state. And China is also influenced by the actions of other states. But China does not direct the actions of states in Africa. And as long as China does not direct the actions of states in Africa, regardless of the economic output, because here's the other problem we run into with the argument that you made regarding um, economic benefit then accruing significantly more to China than to African states. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that happens in some instances, not necessarily in others. And where what we fail to, to account for in that argument is the decision-making of local elites. And that's not motivated by their relationship with outsiders as much as it is their own rent-seeking activities. If local elites are um, pilfering from the government, if they're benefiting themselves and their family members, there's only so much of the benefit, economic or otherwise, that's going to trickle down to lower levels. But that's not the action of China. That's not the action of Western powers. That's not the action of colonialists. Those are, those are the actions and the decisions of local elites. No, I, I, I think you, you make a Because a, a we very, don't exist in a purely economic world. I, I think you make a very strong point about, about locating agency within these, these African states. Um, but in terms of... In terms of Neocolonialism, at least the, 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 the definition I got. So, like, so let's say it's the 1960s, and let's say it's 1965, and you're an African country. 
how much can you be directed by the U.S. or by the Soviet Union at that time? Because, he, I mean, Nkrumah is making this at specifically targeting the U.S. And you're using the word directed. So I want, I want to know, you know, give me an example of what you mean by directed. And then I'm going to try and use that example and see if there's any modern parallels. Um... When I when I think of the word directed, I may not use the U.S. for example as examples because the U.S.'s influence was not as bold at that point. Or bold is probably not the right word, but it wasn't it wasn't as pronounced. strong. It wasn't yeah, yeah exactly. It wasn't as pronounced at that point. Where we've seen the U.S. step up and be a hegemon was following the end of the Cold War, because we had bipolarity during the independence period. You were either you know African states that were achieving independence or attempting to determine their local government structures and institutions were choosing to be either capitalists or socialists. And if they did that, then originally they had to choose between siding siding with the U.S. or siding with USSR. And then following the split between USSR and China, then you could be socialist or communist and pick one or the other. But um, when I think of colonialism, I think of France. But and I did I not say of, colonialism. I'm saying well, sorry, neocolonialism. Neo-colo- well, even, neo, even with neocolonialism, I think of France and I think of uh, the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, for instance, and policymaking that happened at the level of the Commonwealth that would filter down to individual states and what they what they could or could not do. Um, and I, I don't see that level of influence. I don't see that level of power and um, in Chinese behavior on the continent. And there's, there's a simple way to even to, to make okay. my argument. China has had to work hard to woo African states. And China is wooing African states. And um, Chinese engagement in Africa has been a singular lesson in soft power. Philip Snow has written about this. And even in the work that he's done historically, I see parallels through till today. But the amount of work that China's had to do to win African favor to curry African, um, so what I'm looking for, cooperation and collaboration. That to me is not the activity. It's not. It's not. It's not a typical mannerism or behavior of a neo-colonial. Well, all right. Then let's talk about um, maybe the textbook definition of neo-colonialism: French West Africa, and 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 French and French West Africa does a lot of stuff that. Um, I, I, I personally think is, is um, n- not the most positive for their, their former colonies. So not to, not to, the to, most positive. I love to, how you put that. That's wonderfully put. I am really diplomatic because I don't want anybody not to like me. <laughs> not the most positive. Well, French West Africa consists of some of the poorest countries in Africa, economically and socially, but resource-wise, some of the richest countries in Africa. It, and and so like so French West Africa and in, in terms of the the way France um, finances a, a lot of these countries that uh, they collect revenue and it goes to, to France if, if yeah, I'm, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. I, I believe their national um, income is collected it, at the it, Central it, Bank of France. Uh, everything from from these um, French centers of, of, of learning the, 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 the scholarship system. There's a, a thing, man. I think in July or June when this. A young Senegalese girl was trying to get one one of these scholarships. Went to the French embassy in the car. Has such a terrible experience. She turned down the the, the scholarship. Um, but the, I mean, the scholarships exist. And 
And so if that's like, let's say, the textbook definition of a neocolonial power, some of the things, I mean, these are things that France, you know, has, but the, the France does try these things. France does try to maintain soft power. It does so with economic weight behind it. But if it's the matter of economic weight behind it, perhaps one can make the argument that, that some of the things China does or tries to, to have done also has economic weight behind it. But you, you want to make a point. Um, well, you, you talked about France's economic power as part of their arsenal and their influence in Africa. Um, I would add to that their, um, what's, their uh, what's, what's the word that you use when, the military installments. The military installments. Installments through Western Africa. Um, I would add to that their representatives and governments of, um, in Francophone Africa, which you don't see with the Chinese. We don't have Chinese military installments in Africa. I, I think they they might there might be United Nations peacekeeping projects where I, I think they're building a naval center in the Horn of Africa. I, I'll, I'll have to check back on this, but you're you're right. There, there's a, a only a small limited um, uh, force, and it and it's 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 not through the mechanism of the Chinese government. It's through a bigger global. IGO as of present. As as a as of present. Well, I, I'm I'm gonna try and and bust out a, a, a few a few figures right here, and, and so we'll we'll try and and, and talk about because I think you made a very compelling point that um, in terms of the military might, um, China isn't there. So I'm gonna try and focus more around the the economic, the economics behind this to see if if, if that might help with the argument. So uh, there was this great infographic I, I recently found uh, through the Christian Science Monitor, um, but the uh, sources are originally from the African Development Bank, uh, about Africa's exports to China and China's exports to Africa. And in terms of African exports, uh, it looks like 70% of African exports to China are oil, so 70%. Yep. Uh, then a 15% raw materials. So we're looking at 85% of African exports. Now, uh, just to China or just, in general, just because to China. if we look at African exports to anywhere in the world, you're looking at the exact same makeup. Uh, yes. It's uh, not that yes. the African economy has other options and China is choosing only to buy natural products well, from Africa. One of the things I, that I, 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 I want to, I really try to make the point of is, and generally I, I believe that, um, and other people have said this, Professor Deborah Bottingham has said this, like you can see in the China-Africa relationship anything you want, and you'll see it. My contention has always been, and it will basically always be, that Chinese engagement with Africa is actually not fundamentally different from, let's say, U.S. engagement with Africa. So... If you believe China is great for Africa, then I would say you should also kind of believe the U.S. is great for Africa. If you believe China is bad for Africa, then you should say also kind of similarly believe China is bad for Africa. And if you believe China is a neocolonial power in Africa, then you would also believe that the U.S. is a neocolonial power in, in Africa. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll look at some, some other statistics. That's, that's the way I look at it. Um, because one, one of the things I, I always try to do is I try to say that China and, and the U.S. in terms of Africa are not all that different. I'll agree and yet disagree with you. All right. Um, I agree with, with, with your argument that they're working towards the same goal. They're, they're, I mean, let's be honest. Everybody's in Africa for their own personal self-interest. I thought they just liked Africans. Oh, no. But I can't say that. I'm African. Of course we love Africans. But no, they're not in there because they, they love Africans and we all want to sit around a tree and sing Kumbaya. No. 
That's Which is no, what Africans you know, do all the Uncle time. Uncle Sam the way. is wonderful, but that is propaganda. Even the idea of South South solidarity, yeah, let's be completely honest. South South solidarity is propaganda. And both sides are doing a great job. American Aid, USA, USAID, um, the US State Department, everybody's doing a great job of trying to sell themselves as a great friend to the African while they're doing an even better job of benefiting as much as possible from Africans. Um, so I'm not countering you on that point. But what has been particularly interesting about Chinese engagement with Africa, which again goes back against the idea of a neo-colonialist um, relationship, has been um, increasing agency and participation on the African side in the relationship. What we've seen, um, at least what I've seen and observed in my short 28 years on this earth, has been primarily in, with regards to our engagement with the West, with the US or with European states, we would be told what to do and how to do. So if the US is going to provide aid, it's usually in these certain forms and you have to fix your government this way or you have to do this other thing and there's conditionalities and all that stuff. Rwanda remains the sole case in Africa of a country that determines the sort of aid it wants from the US and from the West and how it will receive it. Most of their African countries are told, yeah, sure, we'll give you aid, but these are the things that you have to do. Where China has been a little different has been that the Chinese have provided the aid that the African people have wanted. And it's not necessarily been the aid that they've needed. Um, sometimes it's been football stadium, but they wanted the football stadium. And again, is it the African people in general? Are we talking about the entire community or are we talking about a government leader who wanted a football stadium because it looks good for him? But we're seeing more active participation on the part of Africans, which for me, I believe, is a good output because hopefully in time, then we'll see better, um, better governance coming out of Africa. Because if, we're active, if Africans are actively engaging in policymaking, in decision-making, in, uh, in identifying goals and targets for their own social and economic development and educational growth and advancement, I can't wait to see where that goes. And I think that China has helped play a role in bringing the African to the table as a voice, as a, a stakeholder in the interest of Africa. And um, that for me is very different. Um, the other thing, I mean, the other, the, the big, it's not quite the unicorn because it's actually being realized, but um, <laughs> the big example that everyone points to is infrastructure development in Africa. And for years, we're talking back to the 60s, African countries have been asking for ways to develop infrastructure, ways to develop railway systems, road networks, um, better telecommunications across the continent, and have not been able to do that. But we're seeing that happen today with Again, at the hand of the Chinese and Chinese entities and Chinese corporations, we're seeing fiber optic cables being laid across Africa. Now, if I'm on the phone or on the internet with my friends in certain parts of Africa, they have a faster connection. <laughs> it's my end that's fritzing out. Uh, um, yes. They live more on the internet and, um, and use more technology than I will probably ever understand the, you know, the rest of my life. But we're seeing a lot of those advancements coming with 
aid and assistance from the Chinese where they have, they have been willing and they have opted to provide the aid that Africans have asked for and the aid that African, Africans want. So yes, um, Chinese are in it for their own economic benefit and political benefit. It's not just an economic relationship, but it's having repercussive effects um, and I use repercussions in, in, in a non-negative way at all because it's, it's having beneficial, um, a ripple effect, and it's having beneficial um, effects that I think will, they have the potential to bring about an even bigger benefit to African states if appropriately managed. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that we're very, very wrong in the way that we view China and Africa because a lot of people view China and Africa as, almost, as, as a relationship in a vacuum which it's not, and even worse is an alternative to the West, which is worse, and it's not the way that it is. Um, we have two separate entities with different strengths um, and different interests that are able to work in tandem with each other for the benefit of African states. And once again, Africa is in a place where we need the right sort of leadership and we need the appropriate sort of management of what can be positive and negative relationships with everybody we interact with. And it doesn't just have to be America or China. It can be the neighboring African country or even dissidents within our own country's borders. But we need to better manage the situation at hand and our future planning. I, I think that that's that's very very well said and and, and very and very persuasive. Obviously, in the argument of neocolonialism, <laughs> we've kind of just flounced everywhere because well, that's what happens. It's it's such a it, no, I, I ultimately, ultimately, I, I think, I think you're right. I, um, I'm at, I'm actually one of those people that don't really see that much competition in terms of um, China-Africa relationships. Uh, there was well, I think a, it's a, it's a political. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's not it's, economic, no, it's, and it's really not it's, not necessarily um, tangible. It's it's political influence. That it's they're the equivalent for. of like the Central Asian great game between, you know, England and Russia, like, in the in, was the 19th century, where, like... Or I even, mean, like, it, I mean, during it, the Cold War and the yeah, Russia... Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I find, and I find that, that sort of... These sort of pronouncements... Um, uh, uh, President Kenyatta goes to China. Kenya's looking east. Kenya is slapping the face of the West. They don't want to do anything with the U.S. anymore, and and I, I, no, I no, quite no, frankly no. roll my eyes because no, that, that's not going to happen because <laughs> Kenya would first have to jump out of the lap of the U.K. And and because yeah, if, if uh, in terms of Kenya and Kenyan politics and, and Kenyan e economics, I mean tourism big deal. They the relationship so with the U.K. Many ties is, is, to the United is, is, is Kingdom a, and to the U.S.A. And that, they're not they're not removed. And I mean, if we're going to talk about neocolonialism, African states are not easily. Or even difficulty, difficulty is not a word. But African states are not moved. They're not easily removed from their relationships with colonial, um, with their colonial leaders, masters, controllers, whatever the right word is for that. Oh gosh! And, gonna, and I said all the all the wrong words. I know. It's if I ever get on iTunes. Um, but we're not that removed from the 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 the, the international oh. relations that we have established. The partners or enemies or frenemies, wherever we're at within that you know, particular permutation, but we're not removed from the relations that we have established and the people that we know. And so, yes, when China enters into the foray as an, as, um, an opportunity, it's not an opportunity in the absence of all others. It's an opportunity with all of the other opportunities that present themselves. It's not, 
We're not leaving the U.S. for China or leaving the United Kingdom. I mean, they're not even leaving France for China. And I'm not going to say how I feel about that, but that's my point. No, I think I think that's 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 very well said. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish off with with about one one more statistic, and then and then we'll get on to the recommendations. So, um, one of my one of my favorite. Um, reports or sources on the China-Africa relationship is this great um, government uh, uh, accountability office report uh, about China-Africa r- relations and and it's 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 very easy to, to, to find on 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 Google and they have some really fantastic charts but one of my favorite charts is I don't know if I have the page on it I have it on my notes where basically it's um it's figure four US and Chinese Imports of goods from Sub-Saharan Africa, 2001 to 2011, and it's, uh, basically they, they talk about um, three different categories: uh, all other, ores, metals, and minerals, and petroleum. And if you, if you look at this this bar, I want to see if if, if 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 you can see it. Basically, by the time 2011 hits, they're about the same level, about close to the the 80 billion dollar range. Where um, and they're both about the the, the the same amount. China is uh, importing less petroleum, but more uh, minerals and and, and metals. Um, the U.S. is importing a lot more petroleum, less minerals, um, and they both have the same amount of, of, of other. other. <laughs> and 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 so basically, what, what one of the things that uh, I'm going to be interested to see is in terms of the the resource extraction sector. Whether there will be uh, actual China, Africa, and U.S. cooperation, because these are things that they most um, overlap. The, the U.S. doesn't do infrastructure, and yeah. and, it, and it's and it's quite unfortunate. And I think that the U.S. should, but that's a personal opinion. It's one of the things that I admire that the Chinese are willing to 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 do infrastructure projects and um, and uh, loans for resources and 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 um, and, and build turnkey uh, infrastructure projects or, or turnkey projects for African um, clients. I think it's a, a really good deal. Uh, but in terms of the ways they overlap, I think they they're, they do they do more similar than different uh, things on the African continent. Um, and so my my final my final thing is I'm going to double down on China is as neo-colonial in my view as the U.S. So if you don't think China's neo-colonial, I don't think I you still disagree. Claim that that the U.S. is is neo-colonial. Um, it uh, and the U.S. has way more influence than China, though. In, but we're talking in about Africa. influence, and we talked about something different. No, and influence that's Influence versus v- versus direction. direction. Um, but the level of influence that the U.S. has exerted in 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 some African states has bordered on direction. Uh, I mean, disagree. I I dare you. Just I, try. I'm, I'm going to disagree. Come on, disagree. I'm going to disagree. <laughs> All right. So let so let's say for example, right now, um, the 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 issues going on with with Kenya and the uh, International Criminal Court, yeah, and 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 Kenya opting out of that. I'm sure the U.S. if they could would like Kenya not to opt out of that. But even during the elections, like and and it looked like Kenyatta was going to win. You know, it's not like. The U.S. told the a the African Union, "Hey, you can't recognize Kenya anymore." I I I think that uh, this is the way I see it. People project power and direction that the U.S. doesn't have in everything in Africa, and people project a unity and a sense of purpose that China doesn't have in Africa. 
And so what people end up thinking is that the U.S. is always pulling the strings in Africa and that China has a unifying vision and a central plan in Africa, whereas in my experience, none of those are true. I am going to partially agree with your first statement. A lot more power is construed to the U.S. than it perhaps wields. I'm not saying that it doesn't have it. I'm saying then it perhaps wields. I mean, look at, for many, after following the structural adjustment programs, for instance, in Africa, um, Africa kind of was a been there, done that, and nobody was interested in Africa, and it fell off the map for a number of years. And it's only been recently recentering itself on um, as, um, as an important objective in U.S. foreign policy. It wasn't for a number of years. I mean, look at the early 2000s and late 90s. I don't think anybody really knew where Africa was again on the globe. Um, it just wasn't important, but it's becoming important. And um, perhaps the U.S. government is still um, attempting to figure out how it will continue to play its interests on the continent. But yes, China, the idea of China, which is detrimental to the arguments that we make when we throw around, bandy around the word China, like there, there is such a thing as China. There is no single Chinese entity. The Chinese government um, does have economic objectives and political objectives in Africa, more political than economics, I'd argue, but you have individual Chinese enterprises. And even, I'd go even lower than that, you have individual Chinese with differing objectives on what they want to do and how they want to do things in Africa. And unfortunately, when you have, for instance, um, bad decision making or violations of the law by a certain group of Chinese individuals, that is construed as China. That's not China. That's not necessarily even representative of um, the Chinese government or Chinese government objectives. There's a story I tell a lot um, of um, humans, human rights abuses and um, employment abuses at a mine in northern Zambia. Oh, the coal mine? Um, the, the copper mines. Yeah. And um, there was an incident with an ethnically Chinese manager at the mines. And when complaints were put through to the Chinese embassy, the Chinese embassy apologized profusely. And the news about these violations of, um, of Zambians' rights were spread across the, the internet all over the world. And everybody knew, well, look, well, you know, look at all these horrible things the Chinese are doing. What nobody kept track of or heard about was a week or two weeks later when it was reported in the news in a tiny little two-bit, um, two-paragraph story that actually the Chinese ethnically Chinese manager was an Australian citizen and not a Chinese citizen. Those but Australians, you just his can't work action, with <laughs> we didn't. He didn't mean that. We love Australians. I love Australians. Um, I'm lying. I love Australians. Good, good job with your elections. I have no problems. <laughs> but the, the, the actions um, of one person who looked a certain way were then, cast, were then used to cast aspersions against a government, a, a group of people, different business entities it's like again it's like talking about neocolonialism it's this huge huge um amalgamation of different actors with multiple objectives and everybody's going at the same time and we're trying to make sense of what's happening and it's very difficult to do so and so we have to be judicious in our use of language we have to be judicious in our um our 
task making and I, I don't know what I mean by that. I'm running long. Anyway, um, all that to say that I still don't think that we have, we're in a state of neocolonialism. I'm seeing more um, autonomy um, on the part of African states and I'm very glad to see it. But I think that there's yet more discussing to be done with perhaps other experts besides myself and Winslow. But this has been lots and lots of fun. Um, Winslow talked about the, the data to look at. Um, I would recommend going back and looking at, um, if we're looking at African trade data with China, then make sure you're looking at African trade data with um, the US or with Europe or um, um, other entities. But um, I don't have any recommendations except to say, let us know if you have questions or things you'd like us to talk about. We're getting this off the ground, and we'd love to talk about things that interest you and not just us. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Kalu. I think um, good closing uh, statements. Um, I'm going to have uh, two recommendations really quick. One is if you're interested in this, there's a, a white paper that just came out. And the white paper is titled da, 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 China, Africa, Economic and Trade Cooperation in brackets, 2013. Uh, really boring government document. I hope we might be able to discuss it next week in, in detail. But it has um, some facts and figures that also go along quite well with the GAO report and also with the um, uh, statistics in the Christian Science Monitor slash African Development Bank. The last thing I'm also going to recommend is a, um, a guest post on a blog. So this is the name of the, of the uh, post, uh, Joburg, Chinese shops move out to the suburbs. It is by a certain Dr. Yoon Jung Park, who is guest blogging at China in Africa, The Real Story, one of the best China Africa blogs out there by uh, Professor Deborah Brodingham. And it uh, just came out today. And basically, Dr. Park shares a really interesting anecdote from her latest trip to Johannesburg. Uh, it is a really short piece that describes how uh, Chinese retailers are, are moving in these different uh, retail spaces and markets in South Africa. So usually when we think about like Chinese retailers and Chinese shops, we have this impression of really... Um, really low-level, small-scale shops, sometimes even roadside vendors, uh, basically share, selling you know, cheap goods to um, uh, poor, sometimes benighted Africans. I, this is a great piece that talks about some of the, the complexities and how the Chinese are moving to these other areas and trying to, trying to set up retail. Um, their clientele are mostly wealthy white South Africans. And... Um, and just talking about all these different spaces, and I'm sure there's also a lot of uh, middle-class black South Africans and, and wealthy South Africans that the Chinese cater to as well, but I just haven't found the, the resources for. But it's a really cool piece, it's really short, and it, and it really provides an extra layer of texture to um, these different uh, Chinese uh, retailers and, and, and Chinese communities in South Africa. That's basically it. Dr. Kalu, how can people find you on the interwebs? I believe my Twitter handle, which is you should repeat, still Nkem E Kalu, and if you can't spell that, that's N for Nancy, K for King, E for Elephant, M for Mary, E for Elephant again, K for King, A for Apple, L for Lampoon, and U for Umbrella. And those are not the military words. <laughs> They're not the military words, but you still did a fantastic job. Will you be blogging anytime soon? 
I intend to, and I will leave it at that. <laughs> Fantastic. You can find me on my Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is Winslow underscore R. That's uh, W-I-N-S-L-O-W underscore R. And I tweet mostly about China-Africa news um, with a few other random things thrown in. You can also find me at my blog. Uh, well, maybe our blog. We'll see if, if Dr. Kalu starts blogging over here. At uh, Cowrie's rice.blogspot.com cowries that's w uh, c o w r i e s rice r i c e .blogspot.com where it's basically a hot mess of different china africa things that i'm trying to eventually organize um, and that's about it thank you so much for your time and you have a lovely evening adios muchachos <laughs>